Well, good morning, church. Thanks so much for letting me get away this weekend and, and for your kindness in that. Uh, but I wanted to go ahead and still bring you this message in this series that we've been walking through in the book of John because it's a really important passage that actually comes with a little confusion as well. And so I wanted to be able to share that with you this morning. So I went ahead and recorded earlier and so that you could uh, plug in and watch. Now, you might have to move around a little bit. I know the corners of our sanctuary are a little tougher to watch, but that's okay if you need to move. Get in a comfortable spot, and let's just jump into it. John chapter 8 is where we'll be at the beginning of chapter 8. We're going to spend three weeks looking at chapter 8, but this first section is a little interesting. In fact, it's a story that many people know if you've been in the church world quite a bit. It's a story about a woman caught in adultery who Jesus blesses and sends on for new life. He has this interesting interaction with the religious leaders that's actually surrounded by mystery. We don't even know what he did to cause them to back away. But the question mark of this passage that we're going to look at, in fact, you might already be confused because if you opened up your Bible, it's possible that your translation doesn't even have it. It's not even listed there in your Bible, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Let me tell you a little bit about why. If you remember last week, the last two weeks, we've been talking about Jesus being at the festival, and he is preaching and teaching and interacting with people at the festival. Well, that section ends last week, but then in chapter 13, or excuse me, verse 12 of this ch chapter, chapter 8, it seems to pick up, and there's continual talk about the festival and this interaction that Jesus is having in the setting of the festival. But this section 1 through 11 doesn't mention any of that. It seems to have be happening in Jerusalem, so it's very likely it's uh, happening somewhere in Jerusalem, maybe during the time of the festival, but it doesn't seem like a smooth, natural flow. In fact, scholars in reading this have been confused, not as to whether this passage exists, it shows up in every single manuscript found. But we find that it shows up in different places in the manuscript, as if it's a story that John tells, and yet the editors are not overly sure about where it has fit perfectly in the timeline. Now, that should come as no surprise to us because I've told you since the beginning, John is not concerned with timeline. That's not his number one priority. Now, he's tracking the story along, but you'll see he doesn't want to perfectly tell us the timeline. His desire is to teach us about the Son of God. And so some scholars have put this in another place towards the end of the book of John, and some scholars not quite sure where it fits in at all have left it to the side or as a footnote in your study Bible as an additional text that they're not quite sure where it exists. But in most of our translations, this is the place that it shows up. And I believe actually this is a good spot. But I'm going to hold and tell you that information next week because we see a very interesting tie-in to the next section starting in verse 12 with this week's passage and with last week's passage. But I'll save that, and you can, just, you can just sit in incredible anticipation every moment of this week, looking forward to next Sunday and that interesting tidbit. You probably won't, but we'll give it anyway. Hey, now let's jump into the passage. So Jesus, it tells us, went out to the Mount of Olives, and early he returned. So 
we've got this idea that he goes out and he has his quiet time. We've been telling you and, and really just preaching at you, really, have a quiet time every day. Get up and get with the Lord every single day. Jesus models that over and over, and here's another section of it. But early in the morning, he returns to the temple, and people gather around him. That is what's happening everywhere Jesus goes at this point. Remember, we talked about the Festival of Booths a year ago. Now, one year later, they're celebrating again. Jesus' popularity has risen like crazy among the people, and his suspicion has risen like crazy among the religious leaders. And so, when he was around the people, he was teaching them like he did often. And it says the legal experts, the Pharisees, these are religious leaders. And it's not quite the same person. The, the Pharisees were the keepers, the enforcers of the law. But there was actually, as your translation might say, teachers of the law or the, the legal experts. These were people that knew how to interpret the law. They knew the law. They were maybe like the lawyers. And so these lawyers come along with the enforcers of the law, and they bring this woman caught in adultery. Something you need to understand really quick here. The Pharisees have moved to the point where they have no interest in really carrying out the law here. They want to entrap Jesus. And we actually see why in several ways. Take a look at the passage. If you start in verse 3, these legal experts came. They brought a woman caught in adultery, placing her in the center of the group. They said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act committing adultery. And the law commands us, Moses commands us to stone this woman. What do you say? This is clearly a text. Listen to the context. Jesus is teaching among his people. They don't care anything about Jesus as far as his authority. They only care now about entrapping him. Why would they bring a lady caught in adultery into this setting, into somebody that they didn't believe had any authority to speak on God's behalf? It's simply a test. Now, we actually understand if we were to really break it down, which we won't have time for, in the Old Testament, there was protocol on how you dealt with these things. There was actually, it's true, the law does mention stoning someone caught in adultery. That's how important marriage was for that man and that woman in the Old Testament in the law. And so it actually shows up. We don't really get any record of it ever happening and you got to understand, in the law, when it says something like that, they're to be stoned, it always writes it in the highest, highest sentence someone could get. So it'd be kind of like this. If you got caught for robbing a store, and you might get five to ten years in prison. Well, the way it would write out if we wrote it the way they did in the law is, you're sentenced to ten years. But it may not necessarily be that. You may have five. You may get off of two in good behavior, right? And so that's how it's written. We don't really get any, any evidence that people were being stoned in this way, but it's possible. It shows up in the law. This is clearly just to test Jesus. What will Jesus say? Will Jesus threaten his popularity by saying, go ahead and stone that woman? That's not really popular. Or will he be obedient to the law? 
that he's commanding. Now, remember, up till now, Jesus has already said, listen, if Moses was your father, we just said it last week, if Moses was your father, then you would follow Moses because Moses speaks about me. And so they bring Moses into this argument. Here's the other thing where we know this is a test. Where's the guy? I mean, where is this dude at? The law clearly states, clearly, that the man and the woman would be brought before and would be stoned. But no man here. No man at all. Now, it's not just straight sexism, though it shows up in here. Here's the reason why. There is a legal process in how the religious leaders have to carry this out. The religious leaders can't just grab somebody and decide we're just going to stone them. In fact, in the book of Acts, when Stephen is stoned, that is a stoning that is in violation of the law. And so here, they bring this woman, and they're violating the law by not giving her a trial, which is required by the law. She's allowed to defend herself. Now, it's not always a fair trial for women. Certainly not. But it's required. And in this situation, not only is that right taken away from her as she's brought before Jesus as a pawn to test Jesus, they don't even bring the guy. He's not even around. Why? Because men had more rights than women. You could not have just drug a man into this situation here in the middle of the temple, in the middle of what's going on with the people in the festival. You could have just drug a man in there and said, he did this. We're going to stone him. What say you, Jesus? Because that, the very concept of him being a man would have pushed the envelope on the need for this trial. And the religious leaders knew this. So they left him out altogether. Some religious leaders have gone so far, excuse me, some biblical scholars have gone so far to suggest that the man actually might have been another religious leader and therefore not very good for their case to bring the man into this situation. But we don't know that for sure. It's just speculation. So don't run with that as fact. So it's clearly a test. And this woman is a pawn because she is available to be a pawn. And Jesus brings, or excuse me, the religious leaders bring her before Jesus. What happens next is confusing and mysterious. And then what happens after that is so inspiring and convicting and should be the model for us as a Christian. But here's what I think we do. I think we read this passage and we get a little more enamored with the mystery and less directed by the ending. So let's just look at both. They say, what say you? Now, this was a test. It tells us right there in, in verse 6, this is a test. They wanted a reason to accuse uh, against Jesus, and Jesus bends down, and he writes on the ground. Weird, right? He's being accused, and he writes on the ground. When is the last time you have written on the ground? Were you like seven years old when you wrote something on the ground? This feels like weird, strange behavior. They continue to question him. They don't even recognize what he's doing on the ground has anything to do with them. And they continue to question him. And he stood up and replied this, whoever hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. Whoever hasn't sinned, 
throw the first stone. This is Jesus' preemptive attack to say, let's just halt this where it's at, and let's just think about this here. You have brought this woman before me unjustly to sentence her to death, the highest sentence. You're not giving her a trial. You're not even giving her the opportunity for the more minimum sentence, whatever that would be. And you're not without sin, are you? Or if you are, step forward and pick up the stone and throw it. This causes them to stop in their tracks, to stop what they're doing. Listen, do you ever have situations in your life where what you really need is you need a little Holy Spirit slap, a little God toe-stepping to just catch you and stop you in your thinking, in your acting, in how you're proceeding for the moment? That is what's going on here. It is a stop and a halt to process. Now, I'm not sure they're ready to step off it yet, but it's, it stuns them for just a moment. Those are important times. And if you ever listen to the Holy Spirit and the Spirit is telling you something like this, a little spiritual slap or a toe stepping to pause you, better buckle up or better open your ears to what's coming next. Because a word from God, which is known in the Bible as prophecy, don't just think of prophecy as telling the future. A word from God, that's the definition of prophecy, is coming for you. And it came to them here. Bending down again, verse 8, he wrote on the ground. So now he's two times written on the ground. One time they didn't quite recognize what was going on. Hey, you were without sin, cast a first stone. Hmm, we need to process that one. All right. Then he bends down and writes again, and now it has dawned on them. Whatever is being written on the ground was impactful, and it causes them to stop what they're doing and to turn and to leave. Those who heard him, verse 9, went away one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd, beginning with the elders. Why is that important? It's clear that something written on the ground was more understood by those elders, and the implications of what Jesus was writing was better understood by people who were more versed in the law and how these things carry out because they got it. They understood what Jesus was saying. And they turn and they walk, leaving the younger uh, leaders there to do the same thing, to follow their leaders out to where only Jesus and this woman remain. But not alone. Where are they? In the middle of the crowd. There are people still there seeing all this go on. Can you imagine if the most powerful people in the most powerful setting, the temple, are turned away by Jesus, who speaks one line and writes things in the sand, can you imagine the awe that the crowd might have had at what just transpired? Now, we don't know for sure if the crowd could see the ground. We do know this. We couldn't, and we're never told what was written. Here's what we like to do. I think we like to really spend time studying and guessing and processing what could Jesus have been writing? Did he write out their own sins? Did he know somehow supernaturally what they did and wrote, write them down? Did he write out a law or two that they were violating in bringing this woman 
We don't know for sure. What did they write out? Did they write out the name of the man who, if he was a religious leader, would have been a big blow? Who knows what he writes? But here's the thing. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what he wrote down. We know something powerful occurred. Just like when Zacchaeus comes out of the tree, goes, uh, Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. We don't get any idea of what the dialogue was. We just know Zacchaeus comes out, and he is a transformed man. And that is what's happening here. Now, I'm not sure the religious leaders are transformed, but they're at least halted and sent away on this occasion, leaving Jesus and this woman. So the setting is the same. The only thing different now at the end is there's now this woman in front of Jesus. We haven't got any indication up till this time that Jesus is going to let her go, that Jesus is not going to bring condemnation on her just as the religious leaders had. There's nothing he's set up till now that would make this woman think she's in the free and clear now. She just knows the religious leaders are gone. But then Jesus asks, a significant question and gives a significant answer. Take a look at it in verse 10. Jesus stood and said to her, woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. My condemners are gone. And then Jesus says, and I think it's one of those powerful things, if you're ever trying to process as a Christian how to interact with people that don't believe like you, that don't behave like you, that maybe don't even respect and honor God or your religion or even the fact that you might want to live it out, he says to her, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you either. I don't condemn you. Now, sometimes we do this. We don't condemn others, but here's why we do it. We say things like this to our kids. Well, I messed up and did that when I was your age, so, you know, I understand if you do it. Uh, it that's terrible parenting, right? Don't parent that way. If you blew it and messed up, help your kids not blow it and mess up. But that's not why Jesus said this, because Jesus didn't have that past sin. Jesus looks at her and he says, I have such compassion on you. I love you. I don't condemn you. But there's more. And we've already seen it in the book of John. Jesus has said up till now on multiple occasions, you remember it, this is not why I came. I did not come to condemn. My mission is not to judge. My mission is to save. My mission is to offer life. My mission is to draw people into the presence of God that they might know God through me. God sent me for that very purpose. The words I say are not my own. They are God's words. I am sent for that mission. If Jesus was sent for the mission of not condemning and judging, but drawing people to God and offering them life in love through him, what do you think our mission is? It's certainly not to judge. It's certainly not to condemn. Does that mean you, can, you can't disagree? Absolutely not. I disagree with about 90% that's thrown my way, whether it's news or the way the media tries to manipulate religion or Jesus or God talk. But so did they with Jesus. And Jesus said, that's not why I came. I came to offer 
life. And then he says in the last sentence, now, go. And from now on, don't sin. We've talked about sin. We've talked about sin as really separation. It's missing the mark. It's like throwing a dart and landing over here. And it's measured by that separation between bullseye and dart. And Jesus came and said, I want to just bridge that. Eliminate separation. And that's what Jesus is saying. Now go and don't be separated from God. Don't miss the mark in God. Don't miss what he has for you by choosing to go your own way. Listen, as Christians, sometimes in a passage like this, this is the verse we like to, to lean on. We like to lean on the last verse and say, now go and sin no more. People quit sinning out there. We have a sin problem. We don't have a whatever else problem. And I think at its core, you're correct. But you have to understand the message Jesus is saying to get to there. I don't condemn you. I'm offering you life. I'm offering you life. So let me ask you, are you a person that people would describe as, wow, they just offer life? They just offer life. Or might you be, if you're not careful, slid a little bit more into a condemnation category? Now, don't understand me wrong. We're allowed to speak against. We're allowed to say, hey, I don't agree with that. I don't like that. But we are not here to condemn and judge people. We are here to offer people life and trust that in Jesus, they can be transformed and changed. That's what makes this story so powerful, so powerful. And whether it perfectly fits into this section, as uh, the translator in my Bible has it, or whether it fits in later on, it doesn't really matter. It shows up in every original manuscript. It clearly is written by the author of John. And it's a powerful understanding of how Jesus sees people. I don't know about you. I want to see people this way. Sometimes I fail. But I want to see Jesus just like this. I want to be able to bless and love them and care for them and offer them life. And after I offer them life, I want to be able to say, let me now show you how to not be separated from God, how to live now to resemble and mirror Jesus Christ. So what a powerful word for us to go away on this morning. Maybe you came in here and you think, Wow, church is all about condemnation, but somebody invited me, so I had to get them off my back. And I hope you hear a different message today. I hope you'll investigate more about what Christ can bring your life and that the transformed power will come through him. It won't come through our judging. And so we won't do it. We will bring you in and we will show you Jesus. If you're a Christian and you're a Christian title, we've talked about this but you're not experiencing the transformative power of Jesus. Uh, it's time to reinvestigate what is at the core of what you call your Christianity and let Jesus work through you. He doesn't condemn you, but he wants to offer you life. He doesn't want you to just say, hey, I'm a Christian, that's good enough. He wants you to live out transformative life. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that we are challenged 
Lord, I'm challenged again. I've read this passage a million times and I'm challenged again that there are those in our world that look like religious leaders. They look like Christians even at times and they are coming to entrap in their beliefs. They're coming or they're coming with the heart of the Pharisee. But Jesus, that your heart is a heart that says, I'm not here to judge or condemn. I'm here to speak truth into people and offer them life. And then I'm here to show them how I transform them by keeping separation out of their life and keeping them connected with God. We need it, Lord. We need it. Lord, I'm asking, Lord, for a fresh outpouring of your spirit that we would grab onto this message. We would own it and we would live it out just as you write here or you say in the end of this section we read today. Lord, we thank you for that. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, Lord, bless you. I hope you have a great rest of your Sabbath. And uh, I think I'll turn it over to Pastor Anson for a few announcements.